Please listen carefully. Welcome to the week that was at Global Voices, the podcast where we introduce you to the people, places, and events from around the world that aren't getting the media coverage they deserve. I'm your co-host, Sahar, managing editor at Global Voices. I live right outside of San Francisco. And I'm your co-host, Lauren, news editor at Global Voices. I live in Bilbao, Spain. Global Voices is an international network of passionate, plugged-in people. Together, we've been telling stories about our communities through our digital reporting since 2005. The Week That Was podcast takes a look at some of the stories that have recently come out of our newsroom. This week, we'll take you to Russia, India, and Madagascar. We'll also speak with Global Voices contributor Kirsten Hahn about the actions that Singapore's police took against activists over their Facebook posts. There was a lot of concern that this was a bit of a fishing expedition to kind of see who Roy and Solang were talking to, what they were working on, and so for civil society, where everyone kind of knows everyone, it was quite worrying. We'll also talk to Global Voices contributor Mariana Diaz-Hernandez about how electrical shortages are limiting basic communication and hindering free expression in Venezuela. Harassment and censorship and self-censorship are really pervasive in the, in the country. And so this um, combined with the infrastructural aspects, which are power outages, um, internet outages, uh, very slow internet speeds uh, really are making hard for people to access communication, other ways of communication, which are very essential in the country. In the early hours of June 12th, a man armed with a semi-automatic rifle entered a gay nightclub called Pulse in the American city of Orlando. He murdered 49 people and injured 53 more before he himself was killed in a firefight with police. The massacre sparked an outpouring of condolences and solidarity from around the world, including Russia. Now, it's important to note that Russia has in recent years caught the world's attention for not exactly being that respectful of LGBT rights. For many members and friends of the LGBT community in Russia, the horror in Orlando was a reminder of their own vulnerability in the face of what they say is a resurgence of anti-gay violence in Russia. Elena Kostyachenko is an investigative journalist and a longtime LGBT rights activist in Moscow. She wrote two powerful Facebook posts that went viral after the shooting. The posts not only expressed her grief over the bloodshed, but they also described what it's like to be a lesbian in Russia today. Kevin Rothrock, our editor for Runet Echo, a special project reporting on the Russian language web, brought us the story. Elena's first post described how she learned about the attack. She was out with her mother when she received a phone call from an ex-girlfriend who told her the news. Elena recalled that she repeated the news incredulously, which her mother overheard. She wrote, And suddenly you see how the blood drains from your mom's cheeks. She goes, as white as a ghost, and says, where? I say, the U.S. And then mom says very calmly, Lena, the train is leaving in three minutes. You make a run for it, and don't take roses. Take white flowers. Do you know this feeling? Elena asked her readers. No? Then that's the only real difference between you and me. The only one. 
The following day, she addressed people who are downplaying the fact that the shooter targeted the LGBT community. She said it was important to understand that homophobia was the cause of such violence, and closing your eyes to its existence will just allow more tragedies to happen. I know how long it takes for a broken nose to heal, she wrote. When doctors say that you'll go deaf from the blow you receive to the head, when they pour piss on you and film it on camera, when you're called in by your boss and fired, and when you're forced to change schools, universities, and jobs. I even know what it's like when your classmates rape you behind the parking garage. I know what it's like when a cop spits in your face while his buddies are strangling your friend and you can't do anything about it because your arms are twisted behind your back and everywhere around you there's a crowd screaming triumphantly, faggots. I know what it's like to dream about buying a small plot of land fencing it off with a 10-foot wall, and raising your children inside this cage because it's the only way you can think of to guarantee their safety. Want to read more about the stories we mentioned in this podcast? You'll find them and more on our website, globalvoices.org, on Twitter, at Global Voices, and on facebook.com slash globalvoicesonline. Welcome to my Indri Pickle Lab. I am showing you how to make mango pickle in scientific way. That's a clip from a light-hearted and delicious video recently uploaded to YouTube. In it, an older woman in a lab coat looks into the camera. She introduces herself as Dr. Indri Pickle, and she wants to show us how to make mango pickles, also known as achar which I can tell you as a Pakistani is a staple on any South Asian dinner table. Family recipes are often passed from generation to generation. The doctor then draws the basic formula on her Pickle Labs chalkboard. Sunshine plus mango. Dr. Indri Pickle is actually 84-year-old Indrajit Kaur, who goes by Indri, and she's not really a mango pickle scientist. She's only playing the part. Her granddaughter, Jasmine Teja produced the video. Together, these two are spanning the generations between them and producing beautiful media in India. The collaboration between grandmother and granddaughter began a few years ago. Jasmine is an artist, feminist, and the founder of a community arts collective that confronts street harassment of women. And she says at the time, she wanted to learn how to do photography and video. Her grandmother, Indri, meanwhile, had an interest in becoming an actor. So, the two decided to work together to help each other realize their dreams. In addition to the Pickle Lab video, they have since produced a series of photo performances based on characters of Indri's choosing. The snapshots appear on their blog, Facebook, and Twitter. In them, Indri poses as a schoolgirl in pigtails ready to play hopscotch, a politician all serious at a press conference, and as a glamorous woman wearing a feather boa and a red feathered turban just to name a few. Our South Asian editor, Rizvan, spoke to Indri and Jasmine about their work together. Jasmine said their collaboration has received a really positive response from viewers, and that relatives and family friends have even told them they want to borrow the idea and team up with their own granddaughters, too. Jasmine said that her grandmother is an adamant social media user who likes to connect with others online and travel the world through YouTube videos. For her part, Indri explains why she has shed the stereotype that comes with her age and learned the ways of the web. She says 
The whole world is learning. Why should I not learn? I have a lot more to learn. It is important to walk along with the world. What do you think of this podcast? Be sure to find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Subscribe, give us an upvote, or drop us a comment. And if we don't appear on your favorite podcast app, let us know. Rimalagashi. Fale Manuel Chanarani Penapu. Umena Asha. Zetimiasha. Arumena Chakafu. Izaitimi Chakafu. That's a song by a young rock group from Madagascar that's capturing the imagination and attention of the music scene in Europe. Global Voices francophone editor Lova Rakutu Malala reported the story. The Dizzy Brain's unique style is a blend of punk and garage rock. Their provocative lyrics tell stories about politics, power, and protest in Madagascar, a huge island off the southeast coast of Africa. The band has been shunned from most concert venues and radio stations in Madagascar. The Dizzy Brain's lead singer explains, We were never played on the radio, never played shows, because the managers were too afraid of what would happen to them if we did. We played a lot of bars, and we were known mostly on social media. The Dizzy Brain's grabbed audiences in France after they appeared in April on the popular French television show Le Petit Journal. During the show, one member of the band openly challenged Madagascar's new prime minister by saying, just do your job, man. This bold and spontaneous plea was widely circulated and talked about by social media users in Madagascar. The group was founded in 2011 by the Andriana Risoa brothers Eddie and Maifa, who sing and play bass. Musicians Pone and Mirana round off the band, playing guitar and drums. Eddie explained why rock seemed to be the logical way to tell the world about censorship in Madagascar. Making rock music in Madagascar is not a career at this time. It's more like an endless battle, he said. First, you would be stopped in the streets by the police for going from point A to point B. If you wanted to play music, you didn't have the choice. You had to go underground and wait. You had to play in small bars and shabby nightclubs. Their big break came when Jean-Louis Brossard, the director of the Transmusicalis Festival in Rennes, invited their relatively unknown band from Madagascar to almost headline the festival. Speaking to Society magazine, Brossard said, These kids absolutely rock. They're going to make the fire, I'm sure of it. Because rock in the end is the vehicle of rebellion. And that's without a doubt a little lost in the West. While in Madagascar, what they're singing has meaning. This is coming from the streets. The band is currently touring Europe with more than two dozen shows planned this summer.
police harassment, an invasion of privacy, an act of intimidation. That's what some civil society organizations in Singapore are calling the recent actions of police against two transparency and democracy advocates. Wagga Roy Nung and former political detainee Teo So Lung had their desktop computers, laptops, hard drives, memory cards, and mobile phones seized by authorities after they were accused of breaking the country's rules related to election advertising. Police went a step further with Nung and made him hand over passwords to his laptop, phone, and Facebook account. The publisher and editor for news website The Independent Singapore had their electronics seized over the same accusations. Global Voices contributor Kirsten Han reported the story for a special project, AdVox, which focuses on censorship and free speech online. She's here with us now to tell us more. Welcome, Kirsten. So Kirsten, all this stemmed from Facebook posts, right? Could you tell us about the posts and why it got them into trouble with the police? Yep, so some of the posts that um, Solang and Roy had put on Facebook were, according to the elections department, could be deemed election advertising, which is banned on the day before the vote. So posts that Solang had posted included things like a Facebook post where she kind of complained about the fact that the two political parties had not been given equal airtime in the mainstream media. And she also posted um, a photo from the party, which had been posted before cooling off day, but she, she shared it and kind of added her own comment in support of the candidate. And another one was just like a, she shared a transcript of a rally speech. And so those were the posts that they took issue with. For Roy, they kind of took issue with some of his blog posts uh, where he called for people to submit photos pledging their support for the opposition candidate. And interestingly with Roy, when he was questioned, he said that he was also questioned on Facebook posts and blog posts that had nothing to do with the elections, including posts that he had written about his crowdfunding campaign to pay defamation costs to the Prime Minister who had sued him last year. And which elections were these? Uh, were these, these were big elections? No, this was a by-election in a very small constituency in the west of Singapore, so it was just for one seat. And it was a straight fight between the ruling party, who was the incumbent, and an opposition party. Okay. And the pair, these two were interrogated by police, and then they were taken to their, to their homes where officers started to round up all their electronics. And there was some controversy surrounding this specific part of the of what happened to them, right? Yes. So what they found was that because the breach of cooling off day rules, which is what they were accused of having done, is deemed an arrestable offence in Singapore. So that means that when the police go to your house, they don't need a search warrant. And when they take your computer and your mobile phone, they don't need a warrant to seize your things either. So they just said that all this was part of the investigation and then they just took everything. So there was a lot of concern that this gives the police a lot of power to just seize what they want and also opens up the fact that they now have access to your personal data. So they could look at Facebook chat logs, WhatsApp chat logs, contacts on your phone, emails that have been sent. 
there's no official undertaking or reassurance that the police can give that they won't look at these things. And Kirsten, how has civil society reacted to all of this? There was a lot of concern, a lot of kind of fear and worry because people didn't know why why this was happening. Right now, it was almost a month after the by-election, the report. Why wasn't the report filed earlier? Um, why are they coming after Solang and Roy? Because the understanding was that these cooling off day rules don't apply to individuals. So why are they being investigated? So there was a lot of concern that this was a bit of a fishing expedition to kind of see who Roy and Solang were talking to, what they were working on, and so for civil society, where everyone kind of knows everyone, it was quite worrying. You say that there were concerns that this was, they were looking for something more, not just related. Yeah. Does that mean so, this is not normal for police to seize electronics in a cooling off day investigation? We don't know if they've seized electronics in relation to any other cooling off day investigation. So previously there had been ruling party candidates accused of breaking the cooling off day rules. And then the um, police said, oh, we've done our investigation and it was a mistake or it was a Facebook glitch. And it wasn't clear to anyone that those ruling party candidates had their electronics seized. So this is the, I think, this is the first time I've heard of um, electronics being seized in relation to cooling off day. I have heard of electronics being seized in relation to other incidents where the police also uh, did not show a warrant. Um, and is this an isolated incident or does it fit into some sort of pattern in relation to disrespect for freedom of expression? It does kind of fit in because not just the free speech aspect, but also the kind of white powers that the police have. So when they investigated a teen blogger, Amos E, for first a YouTube rant that was last year, which he was actually, uh, the sentence was four weeks in jail. And then this year they've charged him again. And when they arrested him, they again confiscated all his electronics, including, uh, he said, electronics belonging to his parents. And that was also done without warrant. So there was a lot of concern that, you know, the police have so much power to just seize what they want when they want. And also, when you go in for interrogation, there is no obligation for them to grant access to your lawyer. So they only need to give you access to legal counsel within a reasonable time. But reasonable time was never specified. So it is possible that you'll be questioned and interrogated without your lawyer. Specifically about this cooling off day where... Mm -hmm. um, it, only, it really only targets smaller media, not bigger media, is that correct? Yes. So media licensed by the government is not affected, which would refer to traditional media like the newspaper, the radio, and the TV news. So they're not affected. They can go on reporting about elections. What, where that causes unhappiness is that the mainstream media is widely seen as being controlled or influenced by the government, so that their news is seen as having a pro-ruling party slant. So a lot of people say that's not fair that, you know, um, online websites that do citizen journalism and alternative news aren't allowed to publish. But licensed sites which come under the control of the government are allowed to continue. So, Kirsten, this makes me wonder if activists kind of live in this uh, scenario, in this situation, and it's probably gotten worse with the years where police and investigators have gotten better 
about kind of clamping down and more sophisticated. What kind of steps are activists taking in, in protecting themselves and their technology? Um, so previously there wasn't a lot of kind of motivation for activists to do a lot of you know tech security like encryption because Singapore is very connected to the web and you know people like the ease of using their smartphones so there wasn't a lot of thought going into things like encryption, Tor, VPN but I think after this episode I have seen quite a lot of people I know move stop using things like Facebook Messenger and move towards more secure encrypted instant messaging to talk so that's one thing that's been done apart from that there's talk about you know more solidarity about being there to support each other so that if one person goes in for police interrogation they'll bring friends with them to wait for them outside so you don't go in mm-hmm. so you don't go and show up at the police station alone thank you Kirsten yeah no problem Can electrical shortages be seen as a form of censorship? That's a question that Global Voices contributor Mariana Diaz-Hernandez recently asked about Venezuela. The South American country has been grappling with economic, social, and political crises, which have caused the quality of telecommunications to steadily deteriorate, not to mention the constant power outages. Without electricity, Venezuelans have a very difficult time connecting to the internet and accessing things like social media, email, and news websites. To put it simply, this isn't good for freedom of expression in Venezuela. Marianne is here now to tell us more. Thank you for joining us, Marianne. Thank you for having me. The state of free speech in Venezuela at the moment isn't exactly rosy, and there are a lot of contributing factors. Can you help us unpack all the reasons why? On the one hand, uh, communications have deteriorated really quickly in the last few years. Um, internet connection, internet access of, uh, overall is really slow, really expensive, and uh, extremely unstable. But at the same time, there is an overt policy of government censoring websites and imprisoning people that express themselves online uh, against the government. And also there is a policy of harassing and harassment and censorship and self-censorship are really pervasive in the the country. And so this uh, combined with the infrastructural aspects, which are power outages, um, internet outages, uh, very slow internet speeds uh, really are making hard for people to access communication other ways of communication, which are very essential in the country because free media is very scarce and other ways of, of accessing information uh, and organizing themselves are really scarce. And so that's the role that social media has been playing. So when people uh, have obstacles accessing social media and accessing the internet uh, at all, this really affects freedom of speech and also freedom 
of communication and freedom of, for, of organizing and, and collaborating. So, Mariana, let's separate the overt censorship, such as when the government blocks a website, from the perhaps unintended censorship, such as when it's a consequence of a power outage. Is one worse than the other? Well, yeah, the, the overt censorship sometimes can be worse because uh, it represents a clear intention of, of blocking people from internet access. However, um, several researchers have considered that the so-called unintended censorship is not unintended at all, but it is a systematical way of um, restraining access to, to technology and to internet. So, for instance, the costs of accessing internet, the slow speeds of the internet, are consequence of economic policies that have been in place for several years now that impede, for, uh, for instance, that they, they, that they stop telecommunications companies from being able to maintain and to, uh, to preserve and to make better the infrastructure for connection, for connectivity. And so these are consequences of economic measures. And so they cannot be completely separated from what we call overt censorship. However, yes, um, systematical censorship uh, that is caused by unintended uh, causes that are uh, economical, uh, economical and structural can be worse because it's very hard to document and it's very hard to precise to, to determine. For instance, we can know uh, by, by running uh, tests how many websites are blocked and why are they blocked. But when a city experiences a 12-hour, a 24-hour power outage, they cannot access communications by any means, and it's hard for us to be able to hold the government accountable because they just say, well, it's, it's a failure. It's not our fault. And so, yes, it can be more pervasive and harder to bypass. Do Venezuelans have any sort of recourse in the face of all this censorship? For example, in a power outage, is there any way for Venezuelans to get online in an alternative way? Yeah, um, we use um, mobile connections, which are, which tend to be more stable. For instance, in other occasions, like uh, we had an election a few years ago when the government blocked uh, internet from the country uh, for like. 15-20 minutes, like the whole country, and so the only uh, connections that that were still available were mobile connections. But when we suffer outages, and these are planned outages, for instance, uh, uh, I have three power, three hour a day of, of power outages uh, every day, every single day, and the, we know the the time from from which time to which time. When this happens mobile connections also uh, fail. We, I don't know exactly the, 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 the causes, but we are assuming that maybe some places that are, are related to the infrastructure of the mobile connections are also suffering power outages at the same time. And so when I have a power outage, usually I don't have any kind of internet access. We kind of use other, other sort of communications, but it's very... It's spotty and it's unstable. 
and so we can only wait <laughs> for the power to come back. And so that way it's worse because when there is an internet outage, for instance, usually it's only uh, landlines, it's only uh, home connections, or it's only one single company. But when it's a power outage, it's usually everything. So we cannot even charge our phones. With it. It's hard even to, to make a phone call. And Venezuelans are known for having a hearty sense of humor. How are they reacting to power outages and the situation in general? I am afraid that, uh, that our sense of humor might, might be um, becoming scarce. <laughs> we, we are still known for making jokes and creating memes and uh, like mashing um, pop culture with, with things that are related to the situation. So uh, people make jokes about um, the Hunger Games, for instance, or about Game of Thrones. And, and they relate these things to, to the situation, which is very um, dear, not only uh, regarding the power outages, but, but the economic and the political situation, which is becoming very, very bad. But uh, during the last few weeks, I, I believe that the sense of humor is, is getting more and more scarce as people are becoming more frustrated and that is becoming too hard to deal with. Yeah. On that serious note, um, thank you for, for joining us, Marianne. Thank you for having me. And that's a wrap. This is Sahar. And Lauren, a big, big thank you to all our authors, translators, and editors who helped make this episode possible. In this episode, we featured Creative Commons licensed music from the Free Music Archive, including Please Listen Carefully by Jowser, Cloudburst by Kay Engel, Indian Spice by Poddington Bear, Masculine by David Seste, and The Fresh Monday by Dexter Britton. Thanks for tuning in to the week that was at Global Voices.